0: Hi, and welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by Eva Gamnishka. Eva is a Bulgarian social entrepreneur. She is the CEO of Humans in the Loop. Humans in the Loop employs refugees from around the world in countries of most need. They do work such as AI annotation, uh, and Eva is orchestrating all of these contracts, this work, giving people in most need uh, economic opportunity. She is supporting them uh, through these economic activities and through the process of humans in the loop. It is an organization doing a lot of good. Eva has been on TEDx explaining exactly what she does. She's very young. She has been running this for about five or six years now. She is doing an incredible job and it is really an inspiring story. Of course, this incorporates outsourcing, so it gets me really interested. We have a far-reaching conversation about AI, AI annotation about human in the loop, also about globalization and the impacts of that both positive and negative. We talk about sort of uh, accessing the industry and pay. It was a really, really far reaching and really interesting conversation with Eva. As always, if you want any of the show notes, or if you want to get in touch with Eva, uh, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. about to start, or somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Eva, welcome to the show. Tell me about Humans in the Loop.
1: Hi, thanks a lot for the invitation. It's really great to be here. Um, Humans in the Loop, we are an AI annotation company. Um, We're part of the impact sourcing industry, and our mission is to provide um, remote work opportunities to refugees and conflict-affected people in the Middle East, and also currently we're expanding to other locations as well.
0: Wow, fantastic. And I think the company name is just Fantastic. It's uh, such humans in the loop is is kind of a, a new uh, area of, of evolution, I suppose, for for business and AI. And it, it's um, really exciting. And so I really want to dig into that. But it's amazing that you've nabbed that name for your company. I think you've done absolutely incredible. So tell us what is for those sort of less familiar, what is AI annotation? Um, and then how have you sort of woven that into your structure to be um, uh, sort of impact oriented?
1: Yeah, I would say the name has been incredibly helpful for us just because first of all, it's uh, very useful for SEO and for people finding us as they're uh, looking up what human in the loop uh, AI uh, is. Um, and also because for us, it includes the social element of including humans in society uh, and integrating them into the job market. So for us, it has this double meaning, uh, but essentially it all started as a social project where I my goal was to support refugees that were coming into my home country, Bulgaria, uh, and to help them access the labor market and to increase their skills. Um, And I was just looking for something easy that they can uh, start working on in order to earn some money while they were improving their skills and going through training. So that's how I came across AI annotation, um, which is kind of like data entry. It's a super easy type of job that almost anyone can do. Um, but it taps into this really enormous market of AI uh, services and um, the growing demand by AI companies for more and more data. Um, So this is essentially what we do, and we're trying to uh, create more and more ways to include humans in this entire cycle of training AI systems, so not just doing the annotation prior to training the AI models and systems, but also after the model is trained to review its output, to provide continuous monitoring of AI systems that are in deployment, and also to provide some type of auditing after the system has been deployed on how it's performing, what its biases are, and so on.
0: Mm. And the perception is that AI is is, you know, pretty incredible and intelligent. But when you see the back end of annotation, it's really not that bright, is it? And it takes thousands of human hours and intervention to actually teach these models. Like what is a lamppost? What is a person? What is a cat? Like it takes incredible time, doesn't it?
1: yeah exactly and we work in the computer vision field Uh, so of course there's also natural language processing and other types of predictive ai that work more with tabular data but in our case because it's so easy to work with images and videos and to label objects on them we chose computer vision and there it's exactly as you say you know you have to be labeling common daily objects on the images but now we're actually seeing that projects are getting less and less trivial. It's not uh, about lampposts or cars anymore. Very frequently, we're working on very complicated projects, again, related to computer vision, but perhaps we're doing uh, trash segmentation for more than 100 classes for recycling purposes, for example. So there, you really need to learn a particular taxonomy of how to segment and classify the different types of trash. right? Or, for example, we're doing uh, annotation on medical images where we have a group of certified doctors who are doing the labeling because there you cannot trust just anyone to do that. So we're working on a lot of more, let's say, highly specialized um, projects that require a bit more expertise before you can start labeling. Um, But still, the actual work is quite easy, because you're just clicking on top of the image and doing the segmentation is the judgment. uh, And let's say the consistency among the different annotators, that matters the most.
0: Right. So you are seeing as the industry evolves, like early day annotation was, you know, very rudimentary, it was the lamppost, the cat. And what I've noticed is as well, You know, I didn't realize this, but the AI is actually gaining intelligence. So you now don't need to point those out and you're having to go more granular. And, you know, you can sort of go deeper and deeper with that granularity. But also I've noticed the annotation tools, they themselves are getting more powerful, aren't they? Like they will often do a lot of the work for the annotators, whereas previously it was very manual. But also those tools are becoming increasingly powerful. So everything is becoming sort of exponentially quicker. Do you, do you think that the industry will get to a point have, will we have annotated everything in five years, 10 years, 50 years? Or do you think that there will always be increases in granularity?
1: I think there will always be tasks that we need more uh, data for um, just because there are an, there is an infinite number of potential tasks and one single image or scene can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Maybe at first you start labeling the objects, but then maybe you want to also know the position of these objects and the angle and the level of, um, for example, shadow or lightning on top of every object. So there's a lot of different attributes that you can be labeling, a lot of different subtleties. Uh, Maybe one object can be classified in one way versus another one, depending on what you're actually trying to detect. Um, So it's all about interpretation rather than even, you know, the data that we're collecting Um, because one scene can have so many different meanings um, and it's up to the the human annotators to determine these meanings so that the AI system can learn them. Um, But that means that essentially it's an infinite process. Of course, once systems are trained, then they need less and less training data. Um, but uh, during the process of deployment, they're facing newer and newer data that is just you know, coming through their uh, cameras and sensors, and they have to be processing it. So there the question becomes, okay, how is our model performing? Because maybe the training data was too different from what it's actually encountering in the real world. So there you have to do a lot of monitoring on how these models are performing, whether there is data drift and uh, in comparison to the ground truth data, um, and then afterwards to continue iterating on the data, continue labeling new data and make sure that the data is uh, being refreshed in order to keep the model updated.
0: Right, right. And is that your job? Or is that the data scientist back at headquarters sort of figuring out all these whatever they are kind of algorithmic interpretations, and then they just give your teams these activities with objectives, is that that kind of how it trickles down?
1: Exactly. So we're focusing just on the human input. Um, The data scientist is the one that figures out the actual data flow. When should the data be refreshed? When is it uh, triggered so that it's sent to one of our operators? Uh, So we just take care of that. But the goal is to make it as seamless as possible so that the data scientist can just set up an automated process, for example, every day to pick the most diverse or challenging examples that the model has encountered, to send them to us for relabeling, then this gets sent back automatically back to their systems. They retrain their models and in that way update them. So that's kind of the ideal. I'm not sure how many companies are actually able to achieve this because there's a lot of bits and pieces and a lot of tools and platforms involved here uh, and a lot of different uh, yeah, stages. Um, But I guess for every data scientist, the goal is to just set up this uh, continuous loop of updating of the model so that they can just go and relax and have a drink while the model is being updated um, and just not care about it anymore.
0: Incredible. And all of this data annotation is asynchronous. So it happens in the background And it's not connected to any activity. Do do you see a time when sort of almost everything's been annotated? And then it's sort of real life instances that need interpreting? And is that happening now, for example, if there's an ambiguous, you know, if there's a Tesla driving down the street, and there's an ambiguous um, shadow, you know, is that a child or a or a fire hydrant or a plastic bag, like, um, and Is that sort of beginning, is there any connection with having a human in the loop to interpret real life uh, scenarios in real time? Yeah.
1: So this is a very interesting application. And of course, it's uh, very relevant for more high risk cases, as you said, you know, maybe for a self-driving car that is driving right now. What is happening right now at Tesla is that they have safety drivers that are available and they have something like a setup where, um, something like a video game with you know your wheel and and your pedals, so that basically whenever the car is in, uh, unsure about a specific situation, it switches to the safety driver who guides it through the problematic situation, um, and in that way provides this kind of like second security level uh, for these cars. Um, yeah. So this is, is that happening that, now,
0: is it? Like so, yeah. not naming names, but these major autonomous car brands they have teams of drivers getting people out of sticky situations.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's this really interesting back end of what's happening. But of course, you cannot afford to uh, not have anything as a, let's say, a second layer um, that uh, is available whenever the car is in a difficult situation. You know, we want to have a safety driver just in case. Maybe they're not needed at all, but maybe there are some There's some accident on the road and the car really doesn't know what to do uh, in that situation. So it's very important for the car to identify these situations where it's kind of an unknown uh, environment so that it can call the uh, safety driver. Um, We are also working on other uh, such examples of high-risk systems. For example, we're doing live monitoring of uh, patients in hospitals. Of course, the data there is fully anonymized, it's blurry so that none of the humans can actually be identified, but essentially we're doing monitoring for falls uh, in case one of the patients falls out of their bed because it's really risky, and if the nurse doesn't come around for an hour or so, it may be uh, a really uh, harmful situation for the patient. So in such, let's say, high-risk cases, we have humans who are available and are providing this type of life monitoring. Another example is wildfire monitoring. So you have a bunch of cameras around uh, different uh, wildlife locations, um, and you need to have a human who's there and who's available in case there is a wildfire uh, notification to verify it because you want to avoid too many uh, false positives that um, you know, ring the alarm and it turns out that it was just someone's barbecue. But you also want to avoid too many false negatives where there is an actual fire and your system does not detect it on time so in those cases it's good to kind of like call a human and then Mm -hmm. see what the human says as kind of a second layer of verification before promoting the alert
0: and that is the the powerful application of human in the loop isn't it because it's it's um i think you know with ai it can be over engineered but it's really difficult to get the the final five percent of accuracy in critical moments. And you could easily just switch that over to a human, who to the human, it would be obvious and easily resolved. And then you've sort of um, eradicated the need for sort of incredible engineering for that final 5%. And like there's some um, Sentinel as well, like, which is an Amazon product, you know, like that's a house security camera thing. And, you know, they've kind of figured out that for of the time there is no need to have people monitoring the cameras. But then when the camera detects a person or movement or light or something untoward, it patches that through to someone watching, you know, multiple screens, and then they can immediately make a call on that and action it. And it's that's sort of, it's powerful, isn't it? That humans can be incredibly efficient if they are just um, called to action a few seconds for one particular function. That's that's so powerful. Exactly.
1: And I think there it's very complementary because for a human guard, for example, it would be exhausting to be monitoring thousands of cameras where nothing is happening. So it's good to be using an AI system that sifts through all of these uh, instances and then highlights just the ones that may need attention uh, by the human. So I think there the symbiosis is really evident.
0: And do do you think you would see that more in driving cars and stuff? Like, you really need to ensure that the latency is kind of worked out, huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that now, especially the self-driving car manufacturers are preferring to have in-house teams who are taking care of that because you cannot really outsource this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, big companies like Tesla are not even outsourcing their data annotation just because it's so critical to their mission and they prefer to have an in-house team that's doing it. Uh, I know that there were some cuts recently uh, over at Tesla, but um, as of last year, uh, they had more than a thousand people working on data annotation in-house. And perhaps many of them are going to be transitioned into live monitoring of the fleet uh, as the, the fleet grows in numbers. And there is less need for data annotation, but more need for uh, actual monitoring of how the fleet performs,
0: and you, with your uh, company name, you no doubt get a lot of inquiries about this stuff. Um, and with the great resignation, with the shortage of staffing generally, and you know, America just seems to be completely unstaffed. Um, do you get a lot of businesses reaching out? There was Freshy, which was one uh, fast food chain in Canada, and that hit controversy, because they were starting to get their, uh, whatever, um, tellers, uh, being managed by people overseas, and the drive throughs, you know, I think are a fantastic candidate for being um, serviced by people sitting in a remote location. Because then as well, you know, if the New York branch is empty, but the LA branch is full. Of course, the people just go wherever the demand is. So it it introduces incredible flexibility, doesn't it? And as you say, like sort of medical assistance, observation, even, you know, medical, like company companionship. uh, These are incredibly powerful things, aren't they? If the interface um, is smooth. Uh, Do you do you see a lot of inbound interest in this emerging technology?
1: Yeah, I would say uh, our biggest client uh, base right now is uh, Western Europe because we're also based in uh, Europe. So it's kind of like near sourcing for some of the companies that are nearby. And um, they tend to trust uh, having a Bulgarian company that's also part of the European Union. We're subject to GDPR and other regulations. Um, So in Western Europe, we have our biggest market. But of course, as you mentioned, Canada, the U.S., um, are also really big market for, markets for us. Um, what I would say is that um, some companies are uh, leaning more towards hiring locally or hiring an in-house team for more high-risk cases. So for us, it has been a challenge of identifying, okay, which is the best type of use case that we can cover um, because, of course, um, as you mentioned, we have the full flexibility of having a remote global workforce. And sometimes, especially when you need 24-7 coverage, it's much better to be working with a partner that has workforce in different locations so that they can cover all 24 hours of the day. Um, So this is something that we've been discussing because, of course, a lot of companies, especially when we're talking about sensitive cases where there is either personal data involved, or, you know, you really need to reduce the latency and to have control of the turnaround time. Very frequently, you just prefer to hire in-house in order to avoid any issues. And that's completely understandable. Uh, So currently, we're trying to pinpoint, okay, which is the best use case or best niche uh, for us to uh, go in.
0: Mm, Fascinating. And how did all of this start? I mean, you mentioned earlier, the the identified need, but why you, why now, Uh, you know, what was your uh, personal trajectory into establishing humans in the loop?
1: Yeah, well, I come from a background of uh, human rights. This is what I studied, so nothing related to technology at all. Um, But in my case, um, as I mentioned, the social mission came first, and then I tried to identify the best type of business model that we can develop around the social mission in order to make it sustainable and also to make it attractive to people so that they can earn a salary and uh, secure their livelihoods. Um so in the end you know when i started back in 2017 data annotation was not the enormous market that is uh, it is right now you know some of the tools that we know uh now were still starting out um and it wasn't that well known so our first client which was a bulgarian company based here um they were actually fascinated by the fact that i actually knew what data annotation is and they were like how did you even know that this is a thing you know we do need this but uh we've been doing it in-house just by you know using our engineers uh and data scientists so um it has been quite interesting in the past five years to see the uh great evolution of the field and the fact that now there is as you mentioned you know such a variety in the, the tools the platforms that are available A lot of innovation is happening. A lot of money is being poured into different solutions. Uh, Some solutions have gone out of business uh, recently because there is such a big focus on software. uh, And there are so many annotation tools out there. Uh, And I was even joking with another annotation company that um, they have this thing called Yet Another Annotation Tool, YAT. And they just use this abbreviation whenever they see a new tool coming up on the market because it's just so saturated. And of course, for venture capitalists, it's much easier to be investing in software because it's more scalable and so on, Um, while the workforce providers were the key and without which uh, software would just be an empty vessel, right? The workforce providers are not receiving that much funding. Of course, we have... Some companies that are really well funded in the field, but not as many as, for example, the different tools and platforms that are
0: out there. Right, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's it's a niche, and most people wouldn't have even heard about it. But then within the niche, and and it's a it's, there's a lot of money sloshing around, though, isn't there? You know, there's a lot. The people that are requiring this data annotation, they're pretty significant companies and are on pretty big missions. So I suppose like a lot of money has flown into that. Flowed into that area, um, but it is interesting what you say. I, in my experience of data annotation, and, and sort of, you know, do certainly correct me. The the actual data annotators are somewhat um, how do I say this transferable, and then the contract sort of arrangements for these people. There's not a lot of love lost, and it's can it be a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of, you know. <laughs> like it was $5 an hour, now it's $4 now, now it's $3 an hour, and, and it's just a race to the bottom for the for the poor people doing the work. Like, Have you seen that as the industry evolves?
1: We're definitely seeing that and we're trying to fight against it. Um, but we're definitely getting a lot of client inquiries where the client is saying, okay, I'm getting quotes that are 50% lower than what you're offering. You know, I'm getting... I don't know, like $1 an hour, you know, quotes. And of course, a lot of companies in the field of AI are just startups. They have limited resources and budgets. They want to move fast and break things and just create something scrappy um, with a very, very limited um, amount of resources. So of course, they prefer to go for the cheapest solution. And there is an infinite amount of uh, cheap solutions right now on the market, also because the barrier to entry is very low. I can very easily spin up a team of 10 people and say that we're a data annotation company, uh, and I do not need a lot of resources or know-how. Um, so this is something that we've been struggling with because we have a lot of uh, internal rules around minimum wage uh, payments for the annotators and um, you know, just dignified wages that we want to make sure that we ensure in every project. Um, So we have definitely lost deals because of pricing. Um, And I mean, I've told my team, it's fine to lose a deal because of pricing. It's not fine to lose it because of quality and other issues, but if if it's pricing, it's fine. We're always gonna assume that there are gonna be clients that prefer lower prices. But as you said, it's a race to the bottom. It's hurting everyone in the industry. Um, And we are trying to promote another, let's say an alternative vision of data annotators where they're not perceived as so uh, disposable and replaceable and just like cheap, easy labor that anyone can do. But in fact, we're trying to focus on the expertise that they have to develop on, the skills that they need to um, build in order to understand your data. They're the ones who are actually going through your data and that know it the best. Uh, And they can highlight different edge cases. They can uh, highlight different subtleties. So actually... If you as a client are able to use that expertise uh, and tap into, you know, that uh, observability of your data, maybe you're going to be able to actually uh, yield much more out of the service. Uh, If you work together with your data and daters and you really trust them um, to provide the best quality, um, you know, a, a lot of consistency, a lot of insight into your data and so on.
0: Right, right it's difficult, these industries, as they grow, they also get commoditized, don't they? And then they almost become depersonalized and, um, and piecemeal, to a degree, which which defeats the whole purpose. Um, And maybe the, you know, like, the irony is that the human in the loop, like actually focusing on that and bringing the human back into the loop, might be one of those solutions, because AI does have its limitations. And then if the humans can actually show their capability over and above what the AI can do, uh, it's an interesting sort of, uh, sort of opportunity, I suppose, for the humans to show that they, they still have the upper hand over the algorithms.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think for us, the question is also, how do we ensure uh, the reliability of those humans, especially for real-time high-risk edge cases, um, uh, how do we reconcile it with the flexibility that we offer in terms of remote work? Uh, because now everyone has gone remote, and we were remote even before the COVID crisis. Um, so we want to be able to provide people with a very flexible and, um, you know, easy-to-adjust uh, opportunities so that they can um, fit it among their other responsibilities. We work with a lot of women who are also housewives. They have family uh, responsibilities, and we take pride in the flexibility that we offer. Um, now that we want to shift more towards real-time model annotation there, we really need to provide uh, a lot of reliability of the workforce and uh, you know, very, very prompt responses that are guaranteed and of course, that's much easier to do when you have an in-house workforce of, let's say, 500 people working in the supervised environment in your office, uh, you know, in the, in the, on the same premises. Um, but it's much more difficult to guarantee with remote, uh, flexible workers. So now we're kind of trying to deal with this um, discrepancy and, and trying to figure out how we preserve our flexibility while also providing reliability to our clients. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And going sort of really sort of along the spectrum of human uh, service, like I see a huge opportunity in just basic companionship, you know, not even sort of nursing or medical, but elderly people that are alone and lonely. And that is a growing epidemic. And it just seems crazy that, you know, there's a lot of people on the globe that could help assuage that. And, um, you know, and I understand that there are some people trying to cure this companionship thing with bots and robots. And I'm like, you're crazy. (laughs) You know, you should get another human on the phone and just have a jolly good chat to them. And it seems so powerful and also cost effective, not wanting to bring everything back to money. But you could do it incredibly cheaply. You could bring incredible um, quality of life back to people. And you're also protecting those people against, you know, falls and medication and things like that, it it just seems sort of an opportunity. Um,
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, we've never explored such a use case um, just because in our case, we work a lot with people who uh, may not speak good English. Um, It may not be their first language. Um, and they mean, and it's also not usually required in their work when, when they work with computer vision, AI systems, images, and videos. And that's actually the best thing about our work, because a lot of, uh, work that happens online requires people to speak English. So that's a big barrier for them usually. Um, so the fact that we do not require that makes it a lot easier and a lot more accessible for for people, but that means that for example, for more advanced tasks, like for example. You know, being a virtual assistant to someone or being a remote companion to someone there you really need a lot more skills and a lot more communication soft skills english skills and so on which i guess you know with the bot especially now with uh gpt3 and um enormous language models um it's a lot more easier to just train a chatbot to be like a companion and we've seen how uh, data scientists like the guy at Microsoft that are you know arguing for the sentiency of such systems um, just because they really seem like they can understand you they respond to you in uh, sensible ways so it's really uh, it's a very very interesting field and um, perhaps um, it's even uh, it for for the counterpart that's using the chatbot maybe it's even better than using a human human uh, you know, partner for the conversation just because um, it may not uh, get frustrated or upset, you know, maybe it's just going to interact with you in a positive way if it's set up in that way. Um, so it doesn't have the risks of actual human communication.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's it's either the beginning of the end or it's, uh, it's the yeah. beginning of the <laughs> next phase, isn't it? But, uh Interesting. And I had a I had a thought once I, I was wondering, you know, there's a lot of very poor, extremely poor people on the planet, like in Saharan Africa and things like that. And they have no access to economic opportunity. Is there anything and I was always trying to think that if you could drop in an iPad into a Saharan village, um, and is there anything, assuming that they don't have education, and they can't read? Is there anything that they could do that could contribute economic uh, you know, contribution to make money. And you actually don't need to these people to earn too much money, like, you know, they go down a mine shaft all day, for $3 a day, you know, so if you could sort of keep them healthy, and they could earn three or $4 a day, it's, a, it, it's a win, but trying to find the the work that is at their level that cannot be done by a computer, is fairly limited now, which is which is interesting. But do you think not wanting to diminish data annotation, but do you do you think like there are parts of annotation that could be done by people with little sort of training or education?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's always been our credo. And we've always tried to make our uh, tasks and our projects as accessible as possible to people, even if they do not speak English, even if they do not have prior training and education. Um, so we're really trying to target those who do not have other job opportunities, even if it's more difficult to work with them, even if it requires additional investment and training and so on, And because this is the essence of impact sourcing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you do not choose the highly qualified people who may have other opportunities. You choose the ones who really need your help and. wouldn't have other opportunities otherwise so it's interesting that you would mention uh, sub-saharan africa because we are actually uh, doing a pilot right now in the democratic republic of congo in -hmm. partnership with an organization called war child and there we're targeting specifically youth that are um, at risk of being recruited for working in uh, mines for uh, working in armed groups Um, and because there is not a lot of economic opportunities locally Uh, The question is, okay, how do we upskill these youth in order to give them access to remote freelance work and data annotation? Um, So for us, that's an incredibly exciting opportunity because we've been doing a lot of work in conflict-affected countries in the Middle East, as I mentioned, so Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Yemen. Um, Now we're doing also a pilot in Ukraine. So we're really going into the toughest regions where there aren't a lot of other job opportunities. Companies are not usually willingly going into these countries in order to create employment just because it's so complicated, usually uh, because of regime changes and uh, international sanctions and just, you know, ongoing conflicts and so on. Um, For us, the problem has been that we're now spreading ourselves too thin and we don't have work for everyone just because we have so many different locations that are interested in piloting this type of projects locally and and including people in in this type of work. Um, And we want to make sure that if we onboard the new location, that doesn't hurt the existing workforce that we have. Mm -hmm. So now we're struggling with the fact that, okay, we're unable to provide work to all of these people who need it, how can we make sure that perhaps they are able to learn annotation skills and maybe go on upwork and secure clients of their own and practice that? Uh, even if that creates even more competition on the market uh, for us, you know, it's actually a great opportunity for people maybe to get started with annotation, to earn some money, to develop their skills for working with clients and then. They may go into something like lead generation or data collection or curation or, as I mentioned, like virtual assistants, um, different types of online jobs that they can do. But this can be a springboard for them, hopefully. So this is something that we're trying to pilot right now. And of course, it's quite hard, uh, especially because in a lot of countries, you have uh, difficulties with the access to the Internet. There is a lot of infrastructure that is missing a lot of hardware that needs to be provided in terms of computers and laptops. Mm. Um, sometimes there are electricity cuts that are affecting uh, entire uh, regions and, and cities. Um, so there are quite a lot of challenges locally that we have to deal with, but because we work with local partners on the ground, it's something that we're able to tackle depending on each country's situation a specific uh, case.
0: That's fascinating. and. I assume, like, spreading out into all those countries and the, the you know, the various sort of emerging, developing countries, um, there's then that introduces a lot of logistical challenges to you, which obviously then impacts the cost of the project, yeah, which um, sort of impacts the overall viability of you then winning more contracts, I suppose, like the whole thing sort of feeds in. You know. It And you are, an, I don't want to dive too deep into the organization, you are an organized, you are a, an NGO effectively. Do, but Well, uh, is...
1: we're both. We have okay. a for-profit and a non-profit.
0: And could you sort of just talking out loud, could you almost get an injection by the Gates Foundation or something to almost Execute the operation so that that, and then you can do the contracts very affordably. Like you sort of take in charity from above so that you can execute contracts efficiently. Is that
1: can that? Um, we so we do have the ability to tap into. Uh, philanthropy uh, funding for example but we try to uh, fund only our non-commercial activities through that so for example if we're doing trainings if we're doing career development for the people community management we have quite a lot of programs through our foundation but when it comes to for-profit work we try to keep it uh strictly business and to not uh inject too much money into it just so that we can make sure that it's working in a sustainable way that the unit economics makes sense, because. The problem with philanthropic funding is that sometimes it ends, sometimes it stops, sometimes priorities shift uh, among the funders. So you don't want your business to be reliant on you know, those whims. Uh, and instead, what we're doing is we're trying to grow the business as much as possible so that it can provide... Continuous funding to the foundation, and combined with other sources, the foundation can keep expanding our impact. But at least we can have that guaranteed stream or guaranteed budget every year through the profits that the company is generating.
0: Got it. We we are reached out to quite frequently now by emerging countries that want to join this outsourcing you know, the global sort of outsourcing phenomenon and outsourcing, you know, we're more in the far more established, which takes a lot more sort of, well, what um, capital investment by by investors and, and sort of a more trained um, workforce, say, but we are also speaking with Uh, an African nation who is desperate to establish their nation as an outsourcing destination. We're also speaking to Uzbekistan, and we've had conversations with many others, uh, the Balkans, Fiji, and Jordan's coming up there. It's incredible. All of these countries now are realizing that outsourcing is an incredible opportunity. Really, you know, and what it means is it's just people in their economy are able to join the global economy from where they're sitting, which is incredibly powerful, which hasn't existed before, um, and do you see the same? You know, you almost again not not wanting to diminish what you do, but you almost have a lower barrier to entry, don't you? Do you see? Are there people reaching out saying, you know, can we can we be? The next candidates, for example, there must be huge demand. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. This is actually the biggest problem that we have right now: that there is so much demand and so many people need work. And of course, we are conscious of the global dynamics of outsourcing from the global north to the global south, and the fact that it may create and further inequality, especially if it's uh, lower priced. Uh, and that's why we want to uplift and guarantee. Minimum wages uh, that are actually, for us, we apply the same minimum wage across the board. So we try to be fair. No matter where you're based, uh, you deserve to pay, to to receive the same salary for the same amount of work. Uh, So in that way, we're trying to uh, remove some barriers between... Countries where the standard of living is different, because sometimes you end up perpetuating inequality by saying, "Okay, in Syria, the minimum or average wage is this amount, so I'm just going to adjust my prices and pay them lower prices, uh, because that's you know the standard in their country." Uh, and in fact, you're ending up you know underpaying them and perpetuating that uh, standard. Um, so in our case, we are conscious that we're playing. Uh, a very important role in the power dynamics in the field, especially in the AI field, because a lot of the companies that are developing AI systems are based in the global north, and a lot of the annotators are based in the global south. And there's this inequality that's happening, and it may get even dangerous because, on the one hand, um, there is there is uh, a lot of exploitation happening in terms of low wages and. Uh, crowdsourcing platforms that are not paying their workers uh, enough or uh, they don't have a lot of guarantees uh, for their rights. Um, There also is the question of biases and having uh, workers from the global south uh, annotate the data um, that is supposed to be going to the global north. Maybe some of the notions are different. Some of the understandings are different. Um, So there is the subtlety there. And there is also the question of personal data, because sometimes we're asked to provide data collection projects. And we have done some projects where you have to go out and actually ask for people to take pictures of the world around them, or even selfies, so that they can train identity recognition systems. But there, the question of personal data extraction is uh, becoming more and more relevant, uh, because usually people in the Global North, especially, for example, in Europe, Are protected by GDPR and other regulations but in other countries that's not the case. So sometimes AI companies are using that let's say gap uh, in order to extract data for a very very cheap price uh, from people.
0: Interesting it's fascinating isn't it and with any solution it seems to you know kick up other potential problems doesn't it which we are seeing and it's uh, everything needs to be sort of monitored and, and adjusted all the time. I've always seen outsourcing as a sort of outright upside or win and a win-win for all involved. And, you know, I look, you look to China when it started manufacturing, the whole country was, you know, absolutely sort of rotten, poor. Um, and sure, they have poor conditions, but sort of 600 million people have been elevated out of poverty. And they go from being very rudimentary um, manufacturers And now within about one and a half generations, they're manufacturing better than the US, Um, you know, the latest technology, better than the sort of originators. And I sort of, I see that as well in the Philippines, you know, people started as call center operators and now they're KPO's and very sophisticated, very, very sophisticated operations. Um, And, but I never considered that, you know, potentially if something gets sort of locked in, then it could actually embed a, lower you know whatever lower quality lower lower wage lower sort of situation so it's um it's Everything needs to be kind of monitored. It's it's
1: really interesting, I I guess, because also we're working with a lot of researchers uh, in the field and a lot of academics that are studying the data collection, data annotation processes, the dynamics between clients and workers. And for me, it's very illuminating to be working with them and to be giving them access to interview our workers, to interview our clients, and to really shed light on some of these dynamics that are happening and to try to think together on how to resolve them and how to make things easier for everyone. But I definitely, you know, sometimes, for example, here in Bulgaria, I'm seeing the great effect that uh, the outsourcing industry has had as well, because we also have a lot of call centers. We have a lot of um, computer science outsourcing and different types of programming services that we're providing to companies, but also some, Companies are uh, locally are now switching from a service-based model to a product-based model where they're actually developing their own products. Um, And it's this great transition from being an outsourcing destination to being an actual producer of uh, technologies and so on. So hopefully this is going to be the path of all outsourcing destinations to actually develop very, very strong uh, economies that are based on knowledge and technology as well um instead of just processing data for uh the global north um and we we're just gonna have to be very conscious of the role that we play and to try to mitigate the negative effects that this may have on the locations Mm -hmm. where we're uh, doing the outsourcing work
0: yeah it's fascinating i'll leave one last question and it it, it's not an easy one though but you know people i believe like we're heading to one sort of singular global economy and technology is helping with that of course and um, it's becoming smaller, flatter planet. And yet, some people think that, you know, especially with this sort of latest political upheaval, that we're having to manufacture our own stuff and America's going to split off and China's going to separate. And where do you see it ending up? You know, you're obviously leveraging the global economy to benefit um, weaker economies. Do you see it ultimately sort of converging to one global economy? And is that a good thing? Or do you think that this thing is going to? Kind of break up into shards
1: well i prefer to be optimistic and to say that you know this is where we're heading just a a global economy that's more equal uh, among the different locations and different geographies Um, for me that would be ideal and that's my goal to create this global digital economy uh, that has workforce in different locations and that and where you can earn money at the same rate as the person in the U.S., the person in Bulgaria, the person in Syria, Uh, and it doesn't matter where you're based. And I know that a lot of companies now are also setting flat rates for people, no matter where they're based, because, of course, if you're working remotely, if you have people moving from one place to another, you don't want to be changing their salary based on whether they're uh, in New York or or they move to Florida during the pandemic or they move to Tanzania in order to work remotely for a bit. And of course, they are going to reject you know, the, their salary being cut if they just move to Tanzania to live there for six months, let's say, and enjoy the, the nature and the sun. Um, so in my opinion, this is going to be a great uh, dynamic in order to ensure that salaries across the board are kind of leveled up a bit and, and to guarantee that people in different locations receive the same amount of money for the same amount of work, no matter what their uh, GDP is. Um, And I think that this is going to be super, super helpful for kind of uh, creating more global equality.
0: Got it. Fascinating. Well, it's an incredible mission that you're you're working on and working towards and and you're making incredible, um, you know, getting incredible results with all of it. So um, congratulations for that. If anyone wants to reach out to you or learn more about humans in the loop or anything, how can they get in touch?
1: Um, definitely add me on LinkedIn, uh, Eva Gumnishka and uh, also follow us uh, on social media, um, humans in the loop.
0: Fantastic. And I will put all of those links and also to your, your website, which is humans in the loop, of course, as well. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you as well.
0: That was Eva Gamnieszka. She is the CEO of Humans in the Loop. As always, if you want to get in touch with Eva or know any more about this episode, just go to outsourceaccelerator.com podcast. And as always, if you want to ask us anything, just drop us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.